Coming up, we have a look back at two of the best films of 2017. One, a story of a woman who found beauty in life's simplicity. Another, about an epic war battle that changed the course of World War II. There is something of a victory within the defeat, uh, which is very unique and which is why the story, I think, is so resonant. This idea that you were going to reach some level and then life was going to plateau out and always be good has never happened to me. You know, you're looking at these guys on screen, they're not telling you who they are, or where they come from, or why you should care about them. You care about them because you believe in the physicality of the situation they're in. You see the task before them, and you don't want them to fail because you wouldn't want to fail if you were in their shoes. It's, it's a, always fun and such a great experience to get to play characters that aren't just love. You know, it just feels really good. But often, to tell an interesting story, you know, you have to play people who are badly behaved. Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krauss. I'm Richard Krauss. Come on in, pull up a beanbag chair, sit down, pour yourself a Negroni, and sit back and listen to the conversations as they fly through the air. Today, we're having a look back at two of my favorite films of 2017. A little bit later on, Ethan Hawke is here to talk about making the movie Maudie. First up though, Christopher Nolan. Dunkirk is an epic film. Dunkirk, if you don't know, is the story of the evacuation of almost 400,000 soldiers from the beaches and harbor of Dunkirk, France. It's a World War II story, one of the most significant stories of World War II. And Nolan does a hell of a job of bringing it to the screen. But it was a rough go. He's been wanting to make this movie for a long time. And despite all the Batman movies, and in spite of Interstellar and everything else that he's done, he still wanted to tell a very British story, but on a very American scale. Therein lies the problem of how to get the story of Dunkirk to the screen. Here's Christopher Nolan. There is something of a victory within the defeat, uh, which is very unique and which is why the story, I think, is so resonant. I think, really, if you to really reduce it to its essentials, this is a vast story that has to be told with an American budget, but it's a British story. And that's a difficult equation to reconcile. And I found myself in a position where I could get that done. And so I have. And so does that mean that this is a passion project for you? It, this is sort of one of those things that- <laughs> Everybody was all sad. Like I didn't give a shit about the last well, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> But But I, I think that there, there is- <laughs> but, that saying I, uh, that I've heard often, and you can tell me if, if this doesn't ring true to you at all, uh, but there's one for me, one for them. Kind not of for me, no. I've never, I've heard that about other filmmakers. I've talked to other filmmakers who do operate that way. It's never been that for me. It really hasn't. And, uh, you know, I, I, I find filmmaking really difficult. You know, I mean, yes, it's not coal mining, okay, but, it, but I find it tough. I find it physically tough. It's hard on your family life. It's hard on everything. It's, it's all-consuming, and I love it, and I love movies, and so I don't ever want to do it for something that I don't really, really care about. I think, you know, there are filmmakers, I think, who find it easier than, than I do, and then maybe that's okay, one for me, one for them, but I, I, want, I, want, to do, I want to do the film that I would want to see as an audience member, and so... You know, really, for me, Dunkirk, my pitch to the studio and my honest and heartfelt belief, and God knows I could be wrong, I'm about to find out, but what I really believe is that it's a universal story with massive spectacle and excitement. 
And so what I felt was, and my pitch to them, is if I can make a sufficiently intense and suspenseful telling of this story, I think I can wrap up an international audience in what previously has been seen as an exclusively British story, because I think the story is universal. Well, for me, I saw it a couple of days ago in advance of this interview, mm. and I saw it on IMAX. It is astounding. It, it, from the opening shot of the five young men uh, walking through the streets with the propaganda uh, pamphlets floating down around them mm. to the gunshots that follow and, and all, uh, it, I, it was immersive. I kept thinking to myself, I feel like I'm there in some way. I feel like I'm in the Spitfire, uh, the, the, the cockpit of the Spitfire. And then I read a quote from you where you say uh, that part of the pitch was, it'll be like virtual reality without the headset. And I thought, oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's about, I, I call it an intimate epic. Uh, what it's about to me is a cinema of experience. It's about what films are best about doing, particularly right now when there are so many other options for entertainment for people, whatever. What movies do best is they create this amazing tension between sitting there in a theater, in a crowded theater, hopefully crowded theater, mm -hmm. uh, and you have an intensely subjective response to the material on screen. You, you have a very private response. And then you have this empathy, this, this magical empathetic response with the rest of the audience. And that's what movies do. That's the magic of movies. And so what I really wanted to do was avail myself of that empathetic response that an audience can have to what they're seeing on screen. So, you know, you're looking at these guys on screen and they're not telling you who they are or where they've come from or why you should care about them. You care about them because you believe in the physicality of the situation they're in. You see the task before them and you don't want them to fail because you wouldn't want to fail if you were in their shoes. So everything we could do technically to make the audience feel like they're actually there on that beach or they're actually up in that Spitfire in that cockpit of that Spitfire, or on the deck of that boat coming over and rough seas in the channel. You know, everything we could do to enhance that helps the narrative drive of the story, helps the empathetic uh, response from the audience. Well, the sound design alone, you know, as the Spitfires fly above you, you can feel your chest rumbling. And, and it's just one more way that I felt that I was being pulled into the movie. Mm. And it works so well. Oh, thank you. Do you remember, if you think back to uh, your early life going to movies, is there a movie that you can think back to that was what you just described for you? Well, the movies, there's a handful of movies I always point to when I'm asked about my early experiences in the cinema. And the, the, the first one I always have to talk about is George Lucas's first Star Wars. I saw that when I was seven years old. And it still stands today in, in my mind as a demonstration of the absolute potential of, of cinema to create an immersive experience, take you away to worlds that you never even imagined. Um, that screening was followed pretty rapidly about a year later by the re-release they did of Kubrick's 2001. And watching that as a, you know, an eight-year-old, seven-year-old actually, uh, you didn't understand it. I don't understand it anymore today, but the experience of it was pure cinema. And you felt this opening up of the screen, this larger than life quality of the screen that's just able to, you're able to just pass through that portal into other worlds. Uh, and, and I think those are experiences 
uh, you know, seeing Lawrence of Arabia when it was re-released in the 80s. I went with my dad to see it, and uh, just the sheer scale of the world that's created there, uh, taking you places that you, that you would never have the opportunity to go. That's the magic of movies, and, and everything I do is is really aimed at trying to get back to that for myself uh, and give that experience to to some youngster who's, who's going to movies for the first time now. Well, that's why I think it's so important to see movies in a movie theater. I think it's primal. I think it's hardwired into our DNA that we are to enjoy stories uh, in a crowd with people. Yeah. You hear them laugh. You hear them cry. You hear them react somehow. Sitting in the dark, watching a story is a is a wonderful communal yeah. experience. And I can't imagine watching Dunkirk on my television. No, I mean, it's made for the big screen. And a lot of that is not just about spectacle. It's about empathy. And when you say, we hear people laugh, we hear people cry, it's actually much more subtle than that even. Yes, that's there, absolutely. And everybody wants to watch a comedy with a, a bunch of people who are laughing. But there's also this very interesting process of empathy that I've analyzed over the years as a filmmaker. You know, when I show my film to somebody, I don't have to look at them or hear them to know how they're watching the film. I'll listen to their notes at the end of the screening, and I will have felt those things as I watched it. And I've puzzled over this for years, and it's a, it's a, it's a borderline mystical phenomenon of, of empathetic response. But what it really boils down to is, when you're watching a film with a crowd, part of your brain is also watching it the way you think the person next to you is watching it, and the way you think the person three rows in front of you is watching it. You are tapping into a collective collective consciousness, really, in watching the film. That, that's the nature of the empathetic response, and it's the tension between that subjective experience and then what you imagine other people to be thinking and feeling, which is confirmed by the odd gasp or the odd laugh, you know, what have you. The audience, we, we educate each other as audience members. Um, and that, to me, is why movies will always be, uh, you know, uh, an incredibly dominant and important form of entertainment. Do you think that Dunkirk coming along when it has or when it does in a couple of weeks, do you think there's a timely message for today wrapped up in this 77-year-old story? It's a story about coming together, about showing community. And, and it seems to me that when I look at the news that communities are falling apart, that people aren't coming together, quite the opposite. And this movie, in it's not a political movie, I don't think, but no. it is a, a movie that... I think has a message if if you're open to it. I think it does, and I, I wouldn't say that I was particularly dogmatic in making it, but the, the resonance of the Dunkirk story to me has always been about a sense of communal heroism. And when I think about it now that I'm finished, I look around me and I realize that we live in a time that bizarrely fetishizes individuality to the extent where we don't even require ourselves to watch the same news as other people. We just watch the news we want to watch, and we hear the news we want to hear. Um, but that's how fragmented our society has become. And this elevation of the individual has come at the expense of the community and of the idea of community and what community can achieve. And so whether people are talking about the death of trade unions or, you know, getting rid of government, small, wanting small government, wanting less government or whatever, this kind of demonizing really of what society has done as a community, uh, there needs to be a balance. And I think that Dunkirk as a story is a wonderful reminder of the power of community, the power of what we can do 
not just as individuals, but together. There must have been moments while you were making the film, because part of it was shot on the actual beach, and, and I'm told that some of the, the small pleasure cruisers and things that were coming in at the near the end of the film were actually present on the day yeah, um, in, in 1940. So there must have been a, a, a sense of touching history or, or something that, oh, yeah. that, would, that would add something to you, whether it's physical or tangible or not, um, that, that made you feel inspired, made you feel different than you might have if you were shooting on another location. I mean, definitely. It's it's a tough question to answer because I think the your question contains the answer. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was ab- yeah. well, it was absolutely a day you know where I found myself standing on the beach watching this recreation of these events uh, with the real little ships, you know, coming in as they would have in 1940 in the real location on the 76th anniversary of the real evacuation. That was a an important moment for me, an important moment to sort of step back and uh, acknowledge um, what a unique experience we were having. Christopher Nolan spent almost a decade trying to get this movie made, and he's seeing the fruits of all that labor now as Dunkirk is being nominated for everything during award season. If you haven't seen it, go see it now. See it loud, see it large. IMAX is perfect, even bigger if there is such a thing somewhere in the universe. Check it out that way. It is immersive, pretty pure cinema. Maudie is a much different kind of movie, much smaller scale. Everyone's talking about Sally Hawkins right now in The Shape of Water. Uh, Let's look back a few months to a movie called Maudie. Maudie is the story of Maud Lewis, a Nova Scotian folk artist. Uh, She was someone with a disability. She was someone who found the beauty in everyday life. Sally Hawkins is tremendous in this movie. Starring opposite her is Ethan Hawke as her husband, Everett. Why was he attracted to this small movie, a very Nova Scotian movie? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he's lived in Nova Scotia on and off for many, many years. Here's Ethan Hawke talking about the movie, Maudie. I got a place in Nova Scotia probably in the late 90s. Um, And I've been going up there, you know, once or twice a year ever since then. I love it up there. And I just kind of grew to love that land and the people there and what that energy is about. And I've met men like Everett. And Mm -hmm. uh, I get, when I look at Maud Lewis's paintings, I just, I get so moved by them. And um, so... You know, it was through a friend of a friend that they thought I might like the script just because I liked Nova Scotia so much. And they were right. You know, there was, um, of course, then they tricked me and the shooting ended up being in Newfoundland. But I was so excited. I thought I could shoot this movie and live in my house, but I couldn't. (laughs) Well, I I think the only part of eastern Canada that's better than Nova Scotia or as cool is Newfoundland. It's it's really wonderful. The people, uh, the the ruggedness of it all. they're definitely brothers and sisters, you know, those two places, yeah. Let's talk about Everett. Uh, Everett, when we first meet him, is uh, pretty shut down, and then Marty helps change his life. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, playing someone who I, I, we're supposed to like, but when we first meet him, he's not particularly likable. Uh, you know, it's always a danger. You know, one of the first things they always teach you in acting class is, like, if you... It's, it's always 
fun and such a great experience to get to play characters that audiences love. You know, it just feels really good. But often, to tell an interesting story, you know, you have to play people who are badly behaved, and audiences are going to respond. You know, and I, I feel as as gruff and um, as unacceptable as a lot of Everett's behavior is. It was not uncommon at all of men of that time period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I remember my grandmother always accusing my grandfather of not wanting a husband, not wanting a wife, but a maid, you know, and Everett, Everett's not looking for love. Everett doesn't, you know, give a, 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 you know, what's the right word? Uh, He doesn't doesn't care about romantic love in that way. The the notion is, uh, you know, comic to him. He wants, you know, uh, to be taken care of. Um, and um, uh, and he's somebody who, through the course of that relationship, learns how to love. And I, I found that story really surprising in the subtle details of their internal power shifts. Um, that I thought were really true to life. Um, you know that all long-term relationships have strange power dynamics when the behavior between the couple is always shifting about who's in charge and in charge of what and what that does to their love and how that changes. And I just thought it was a a beautiful journey to go from somebody who was basically, you know, abusive to somebody who knew how to love and care for another person. Uh, It's a fascinating character to get to play. And there's a scene in the film that I absolutely love. It's it, when uh, when Sandra, or as we in the East Coast would call her Sandra, <laughs> comes over and, and pays Maudie the first kind of real money that she's ever made for painting. And I think it was five dollars plus they negotiate an extra dollar for shipping to uh, shipping the right. to New York. And the the look on Maudie's face. It just, it almost brought me to tears, the idea that she was so joyful and so happy and so excited that something she had made, something she had created, was was going to be out there in the world. And, and as I was watching that and later on thinking about that scene, I was thinking about sort of these moments that happen in everybody's life when, when finally you know, after struggling or, or whatever it is, that finally things start to work out, you know, in that moment. And I just wonder, and this is kind of an odd question, but do you remember a moment sort of early on maybe in your career when you, you had that sort of breakthrough moment, that kind of joyful moment that that meant that things were probably going to be okay career-wise? You know, it's a very interesting conversation. I, I've heard tales of people having moments like that. Yeah. For me... I've always been in uh, this idea that you were going to reach some level and then life was going to plateau out and always be good has never happened to me. Right. Um, I've always had a sense of everything changing all the time. And I remember I remember meeting Richard Linkletter and feeling like, oh, this is really good. This is, I, I like working with this person, and I think I was, I enjoyed working with my own generation and getting to tell stories and feeling like, I, I, there was something about the feeling of making Before Sunrise with Julie and Rick that felt like, mm, 
I'm going to be able to make art in my life. And that's, uh, it's a relief. You know, I, I had this, as, as much as Dead Poets Society had been a, a blessing in my life, I, I, it also had, was like some giant sword being raised because I knew that like this, it, it created an expectation and a potential that I felt like I was only worried I was going to disappoint. Meaning what if I never have an experience like this again, you know? Um, and I was 17 when I had it, you know, that would just be such a drag. Um, and, um, and so there was that, but I also have to say that because maybe because I started so young that I've, I've been on a journey to get to that moment. You described my whole life. I just keep thinking, when is it going to be, when's it going to get a little easier? Yeah. I always, it always, I, I, I always feel like a little bit like Sisyphus, you know, just always pushing his rock. Um, never kind of getting where I want to be. Um, and I envy people. I remember hearing this story about Jack Nicholson at Cannes Film Festival, and he watched the screening of Easy Rider, and he realized that he was a movie star. He tells a funny story about realizing, like, oh, wow, I'm a movie star. Like, I'm going to do this my whole life. And I thought, God, what a great feeling. Yeah. Like, I wonder what that's like. And I, I never had that feeling, like, oh, okay, I'm going to be good at this. I, I've never, um, never had that feeling. Well, it's interesting, like, the, what I took away, like, I, I've, I've written a bunch of books now, and, and I remember when the box came with the first book, you know, they send you 20 or 25 copies or something, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and it arrived, and I sat there and stared at it unopened for a very long time, because, you know, for my whole life, I was, I don't know, 32 or 3 or something like that, and for my whole life, I'd wanted to write a book, and there it was, it was going to be in that box. And, and I knew that things were going to be different. Better or worse, I don't know. But things were going to be different after that. You never had yeah, that. You were, you were a writer. You're, you're, a real, you're a real writer. I mean, if, you know, I love, my brain often goes to things like that, too. You're like, well, this will be on my obituary. Yeah. You know? yeah. Like, well, this, this, this is who I am. This book or whatever it is, this film, like, you know, uh, that'll be on my obituary. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I know that's that's a great feeling. I, I know, I know exactly. I know what you mean. Yeah. So the the story of of Everett and Maud, I think, appeals to people for a lot of reasons. It's a very specific story, but I think that in its specificity, it's kind of universal in a lot of ways. And I think that the emotional journey that you go on with them is in part due that uh, to to this idea that they survived, their love survived, that they survived under very, you know, difficult circumstances, um, any number of things that, that seems to be connecting with audiences here. What do you think audiences are taking away? You know, I, I don't know, but I think that for most of us, um, our, most of us aren't in giant, espionage battles or helicopter chases or most of us don't meet a superhero for most of us the real events of our lives correspond around love and the losing of it and the gaining of it and the intimacy that happens in our life shapes when our children are born and um how we feel about any given time period of our life has to do with that and and i think that it's very difficult to make love stories for adults because they're complicated. It's easy to make love stories for young people, you know, but, but to make a grown up love story, um, is very difficult. It, it's, uh, 
you know, it's like Arthur Miller has the great quote about, you know, everybody likes to, everybody's interested in stories about falling in love that end in getting married or stories that start with a breakup and end in somebody finding resolution, you know. But what's very difficult to do is to show the actual relationship, right. you know. Um, and, and, to, and I love this story for the messiness of real life of it, you know, the fact that, you know, they were, you know, she really never had any, you know, I mean, she, they, they were broke their whole lives, you know, they had health ailments, um, they kind of loved each other and they were kind of the bane of each other's existence, you know, <laughs> I just love, I love the, the and of course, her art is somehow symbolic of being able to find joy in small places. Yeah. And I think that is universal, and it speaks to anybody in any situation. But um, I think that's what drew me to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think, you know, I, I love that her art was inspired by looking out the window. It just, the, this idea that sometimes simple stuff, simple things can enrich your life in ways that I think that sometimes we forget. I know, and you know, I, I totally agree with what you just said. And, and I, you just look out your window, and it's all—it's all right there for you all the time. It's just sometimes hard to see. And there was something—a lot of Maud's paintings, you know, like that you see. There's just a male deer and a female deer, or a male oxen and a female oxen. And a, you, you know, you see these kind of uh, this dual, this masculine, feminine energy. Just you know, either they're staring away from the can, the lens, or staring right at it, and. In, in a lot of ways, that's what the movie is. It's as simple as that. And that's, it's just as simple as just this portrait of, um, of, of this kind of male and female energy. And we're at our best when we can work well together, you know? And um, uh, I just found it really interesting. That was Ethan Hawke talking about the movie Maudie. Now, listen up. I hate life-affirming movies. Movies that try and manipulate you into feeling a certain way. This movie doesn't do that. You'll feel good. You'll feel better walking out of the theater than you did going in. But it is because it's pure. Because it's true. Because the sentiments on the screen are actually very real feeling. And that is a testament to the performances of Sally Hawkins and Ethan Hawke. That's all there is. That's all there is at the House of Christ this week. Thanks so much for coming by. As always, thanks to my guests, Christopher Nolan, Ethan Hawke. Most of all, though, the big thanks goes to you. Thanks for coming by every week. We put a new show up every single Monday. You never know who's going to come by for a visit. And who knows? It, it, it just might be one of your favorite people. And you don't want to miss that. So come back and see us again. 